or if you're a first-time listener, welcome aboard. I'm your host, Aiden, and we're back for another exciting episode of The Push-Pull Factor, the podcast where we hear real migration stories from real people. And we're here for the last episode of 2020. What a fucking year it's been. I don't know if I should curse or not, but that's just how I feel about this year, guys. But can you believe it? We've had our first episode in 2020 also, so, you know, hasn't been that long, but... And I just can't believe it because I feel like Q4 just ran on by. Like, from October to now, I feel like it went by in the blink of an eye. I honestly think it was just Halloween. So, I don't know how November and Thanksgiving and the entire year just continued to sprint past. But, here we are. But, I hope everyone has had a good celebration of their respective holidays. I know I did. I was attempting to make crab legs for the first time, but... You know, my friend did all the work, but the friend in question was actually Tianchu, if you remember her from episode four, since neither of us can manage to go back to our respective homes. But if you haven't streamed that episode, episode four, from Shanghai to Boston, I advise you go back and listen to it. But for this week's migration education, we're going back to the basics, and we're traveling to one of the largest and most populated countries on the planet, India. So, actually, India is a very complex and pretty interesting history with migration. More than a century ago, a large number of people from India started to move all over the world. So, people from India started to settle in Africa, the Caribbean, and even, you know, moving around the Indian subcontinent. So, this is why you can see an Indian admixture in the Caribbean and nations such as Guyana and Trinidad and Tobago, and also in African countries such as South Africa and Mauritius. In fact, in Mauritius, the Indian diaspora is estimated to be about 60% of the population, so it's quite significant. I imagine it's quite a popular, you know, off-the-beaten path, but still kind of a taste-of-home destination for Indian tourists. But more specifically in Africa, there is a large percentage of people of Indian origin in the region because they are believed to be descendants of the laborers who built the Kenda-Uganda Railway. But not only did this railway act as a vehicle for migration, providing work to people and, you know, economic opportunity, this was a dangerous mission that also came at a bit of a high human price. So I'm highlighting this just to show that a lot of these opportunities for migration for some people are just very dangerous and honestly are difficult, gruesome opportunities. But reports say that about four workers died for every mile of rail and more than 38 laborers died every single month. So I guess... Also on top of that, more famously, I guess more infamously, 35 victims were also snatched by man-eating lions in Kenya. I'm not even joking. So, you know, the dangers of starting a railway. Wow. Just, that's, I think that's my only reaction to that. But due to the large size of the Indian subcontinent, you know, their large population, and, you know, they have a bit of a culture of migration and just a large size has led to India being the top source of international migrants, and approximately 1 in 20 migrants worldwide are born in India. That's crazy. Today, we have one of them, and in a previous episode with Shruti, we had another one of them. So I think it's probably a trend that we'll see around the, you know, in the podcast, because India plays such an important role in migration globally. But due to this and the stature of some Indians in some developed countries, Indian citizens actually receive more remittances from migrants than any other country. Now, if you don't know what remittance is, it's any money sent back home from a migrant in another country, you know, who's work, who's potentially working abroad or is living abroad, potentially, you know, sending money back to their families, potentially in a stronger currency like USD or the British pound. But reports from 2015 show that $69 billion USD was sent to friends and family in India by people working abroad. It must be noted that a majority comes from those living in countries like the United States, United Kingdom, and Canada. Honestly, I wonder, because they're one of the largest diasporas in the world. Like, can you find Indian food anywhere in the world? Like, I think in, like, any remote location or any country. Like, maybe there's an Indian restaurant everywhere. But, I mean, it's probably the most basic of Indian dishes and probably the most American thing to say. But I do love a samosa, so. I think that's a snack I'm going to eat anywhere. I do love some sag, too. But are you surprised I didn't say chicken tikka masala? I, ho- I hope somebody is surprised. I think that's the most basic of the dishes if we're, if we're talking Americans eating Indian food. But I think that's a good transition over to my good friend, Swab, who introduced me to many delightful Indian snack while she lived in Boston. But while Swab and I never did get to go to Punjabi Daba, which is allegedly the best Indian food in Boston, we did share a few conversations about culture and society in the world and how it works, you know, life back home in India for her. And now she's relocated to Berlin, Germany to continue her career. So without further ado... <laughs> 
here with me today, I have Swapnika, yet another college classmate from Babson, and also our commencement speaker, who's currently working as an analyst, born in Hyderabad, India, but now living in Berlin, Germany, which has been a very fresh move, like six weeks, but how are you doing, Swap? I'm doing good, Aiden. Hi, everyone. Yeah, I'm excited to chit-chat, you know, catch up with you, talk some shit, and get into your journey. I'm... Yeah, it's actually been a while. So, you know, New Year's is coming up, and we have, like, a whole new year to reflect on after, you know, a lot of bullshit in 2020. But I mm-hmm. have to ask, how was New Year's typically celebrated where you were born and where you grew up in India? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like New Year's celebration in India is kind of typical and similar to, like, the rest of the world. Um, you count down to 12 and, like, um, on, the, on the 31st. You celebrate it with your friends or your family. Um, so, yeah, you just spend it with your loved ones. You have this countdown. You have multiple New Year's parties. Um, and, yeah, that's about it. It's kind of similar to, like, I guess the U.S. and the rest of the world. All right. Okay, but you say typical, but I feel like Indians, you guys go all out for parties. Like, aren't the weddings, like, five days long? Yeah, but that's not <laughs> reflective of our New Year celebrations. Um, yes, the weddings are five days long. I mean, right now, I mean, the trends are changing, honestly. Um, mm. Some people want more intimate weddings, whether it's only for, like, two days or three days, which is... 100 to 200 guests, which I know is like the usual guestless number uh, in Western weddings. uh, But that's very small, like in an Indian wedding. Um, So, yeah, I think um, honestly, as our generation, like the younger generation becomes the larger population in India, um, I think all of these like traditions are changing according to like what we, I guess, like are we millennials? Like, yeah, what millennials want. Are we millennials or Gen Z or what are we? Okay, I feel like our birth year and time comes very interestingly on both. So I don't know. I feel like I can, we can claim a little bit of both. Okay, I guess both. I have older siblings. I feel like they just do millennial shit. That's like, that's what I grew up on. Okay. (laughs) Well, yeah. So yeah, that's what I think. uh, It's obviously changing and stuff. And um, I honestly feel like within our generation, the kind of things that we do to celebrate New Year's or any other like holidays similar to like what other people in different parts of the world are doing. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. So off of that, will you be like celebrating all socially distant in Berlin? Is that, does it seem to be like a big holiday there? Uh, yeah, I think um, in Germany, especially Germany is known for like Christmas markets and it just mm-hmm. gets really exciting here during this time of the year. Except I obviously moved the one year Oktoberfest was canceled <laughs> and their Christmas markets are also canceled. Um, so there's really not much that's happening. Um, but this is definitely the time of the year where everything slows down, like all the stores, everything shut, everyone's spending time with their families. Uh, really does feel like someone just paused the clock and um, everyone's enjoying time with their families um so it's an interesting time to be here because it's only been a month since i've like moved here um so i do have a couple of friends from work and um people that i've met here but um i think it's gonna be very low-key compared to all the previous new years i've celebrated yeah that definitely makes sense i feel like it's particularly tough like having a fresh move during the holiday season yeah, I just feel like I literally landed here right before the holiday season. Yeah. So I haven't even had the time. You know, like I feel like all this entire time um I was just trying to find an apartment, get settled, like figure everything out. Uh it wasn't really my priority to like establish my social life or something. So now that I'm more settled, uh, I'm excited to like actually meet new people and stuff. So yeah. I'm excited for you, too. And I, I guess you can bring, like, a fresh new perspective on German life to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Of course. I'm happy to, like, answer any questions about it. Of course. And I'm happy that I now have a friend to visit for Oktoberfest. <laughs> I know that's the only reason you're happy I moved to Berlin. You've been planning this for too long. Oh, my God. I, I'm also happy you're still employed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm also grateful for that as well. <laughs> So cutting back to where this all started at school, yes, I want to mm-hmm. ask, what drew you to pursue education abroad in university in the United States? Mm, 
yeah, so just for some context, um, I grew up in Hyderabad, which is in the southern part of India. Um, I went to an international school my entire life. Uh, so I think naturally I was more like with the people that I grew up in and stuff like I was more exposed to like the Western culture. I've traveled quite a bit when I was young, so I knew that education was like really different abroad and just the way of living and I knew that the Indian um, uh, upbringing is very different compared to like dif different parts of the world. Um, so I guess growing up, um, I was, as I was exposed to all of this, I was aware of uh, what I had and what I didn't really know much about. So when I went, in, went into high school and chose IB, um, and I was thinking about what do I really want from this undergraduate experience or just a higher education experience. And I realized that obviously the academic qualities of like utmost importance because I really cared about that. But um, apart from that, I really valued the opportunity to get some exposure, meet people from all over the world. And I felt like um, the US and specifically Babson, which has a very diverse um, community community was the place for that. Um, so yeah, I think that's what motivated me to study abroad because I just wanted to like expand my horizons and see what was out there from, I guess, the tiny shell, which was which I was really happy to like grow up in. But I knew that there was so much more than that protected shell like out there in the world. Did you sort of choose the United States over other countries or were other countries like never really in the equation? I did choose the United States over other countries. So I applied uh, to colleges in the UK, Singapore, and the US. Um, but I was a very confused, like, high schooler. So when I took IB, I didn't really focus on one, like, a certain line of, like, oh, I'm just going to do business or I'm just going to do engineering. So even the subjects that I took were, like, I took maths, physics, chemistry, economics. So um, I kind of uh, loaded myself with all of these subjects just to keep my options open because I've always been someone who's wanted to do a little bit of everything. Um, so when I applied to schools um, in the UK, I had to pick exactly what I wanted to study. So I applied to a lot of like law programs because at that point of time, I was really interested in law. Um, but then in the US, I was just applying all over the place. I was applying for engineering courses. I was applying to business schools. Like I was applying to Paul Science uh, programs. I was really just like all over the place. Um, and then I realized that I just like did not want to pick one specific thing. So although I got admitted into like Bristol, um, LSE and Kings um, in the UK, um, and those were some of my like top schools uh, that I okay. was. Uh, yeah, those were some, those were like some of my dream schools that I wanted to go to. I realized that if I did choose to go to them, then I was uh, kind of sealing what my career would be. Um, compared to the U.S. where I would have had the option to either change my major or transfer to a different school. And I think the flexibility of being able to do that and the flexibility of being able to study abroad, which I eventually ended up doing, um, was the reason I chose the U.S. Okay, that definitely makes sense. Yeah, I feel like from like, yeah. the podcast and people I've talked to from Europe, the education system seems very like structured, even from like a young age. So. Mm-hmm. I see why yeah. they like push you along in those paths. And that's actually very similar to the Indian education system because so I went to Babson um, and in Babson, I was there for three years and then I was abroad studying at uh, uh, the London School of Economics uh, for my third year, my junior year. So when I went from my Indian education to the US, I felt like it was a stark contrast because um, everything, my curriculum was so structured, like back home. And then in the US, it was just like, there was more space for, um, I don't know, thinking like about other things. And um, there was just more practical learning, I would say, compared to the more rigorous, like theoretical learning that I was used to. So I really unlearned everything I learned um, in India, 
uh, so that I could do well in the US. And then when I went back to LSE, I had to relearn it all over again because it was just so similar to like how I grew up uh, in India and like basically the way we would get tested in exams or the way I had to study and things like that. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely a big contrast. And I felt that like later on in like my uh later on in my education as well you know i i agree i've heard similar things just across the board and you know it makes sense with you know the imperialism in india so <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah i mean what do you expect we've been colonized so of course we adapted everything from the british um so yeah so i guess going off of that outside the international student sphere is it common for indian students to study abroad or like want to study abroad um, I think so. Um, I wouldn't say it's like extremely common where everyone has the opportunity to do it. So, of course, like I recognize the privilege that like you have to be given the opportunity to go abroad and study because it is an expensive education um, and not everyone um, can get it. Um, but I think obviously in the major cities like Hyderabad, Bombay, Delhi, um, Chennai, like all the other major cities where there's uh, more exposure um, to higher education abroad, um, it's you would see that most people, it's like easy for them and accessible for them to like study abroad. Uh, but mostly if you look at India as a country, um, most young people do go to America or other places for grad school and not undergrad. So it's a very certain section of people that really choose to go abroad for undergrad. Okay. Mm -hmm. I can see, honestly, after being through undergrad, I can see how graduate degrees are a lot more important. I was like, you know, I could, I should have put a lot more stock in. Well, <laughs> it really depends on what you want. And as I said, I was such a confused high schooler, right? Like I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think the most, for a lot of people, the practical choice is to just wait it out, like to do school and to do undergrad um, in India and then decide what they want to specialize in. So um, I think that's what ha that's what really happens a lot of the times. So shifting over to your time at Babson. Mm -hmm. So like, was it your first time in the States or had you been there before? I've been there before, um, but I was very small. So it was technically like like when I when I first visited. So technically, I think when I went to U.S. for my um, for my undergrad, that was the time I spent like more like i mean i guess i consciously spent more time so yeah all right so i guess what was like your first week or so like i know there's like is there a separate international student orientation or do you guys just get like an extra day or something like what did your family come with you like what was that experience like um so yes we did have a separate international orientation we did all the um the basic orientation stuff that every student had to do. And then we would have some additional sessions on top of that for international students to meet each other and basically also meet like student leaders from across different years um, and learn about their experiences of being an international student and what it really means at Babson. Um, and actually my parents weren't able to make it the first time um, I was coming to Babson because um, I, we just had some stuff going on at home and they had to be there. So they were uh, busy with that. But luckily, one of my like friends who ended up being one of my best friends at Babson, um, her mom was coming uh, like both of us are from Hyderabad. So we flew together and her mom uh, came with us and then she dropped us off. Um, so, yeah, it, and then I also had a lot of family, friends and relatives in Boston. Um, so they were there during my entire orientation week. So even though my parents weren't there, I had family and friends who literally helped me move into my dorm and like completely like set me up and stuff. So, yeah. That's good. I, you had somebody to help you have that moving. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm so I'm so grateful for that because I know it's like not common, but um, it just like worked out. So, yeah. So I guess speaking more generally on your time in the U.S., was there anything particularly like jarring or shocking about life in the United States? I guess anything that took some time to adjust to? I think initially, obviously, it's the cultural shock and the differences, right? On just the way people live. And um, 
I don't know. It's like literally things like every day, like small things every day. Like someone would open the door for me and I would be like, wow, that's so nice. Like they're so polite. And not that people in India are rude or something. Like it's just you wouldn't do that for a random stranger, you know? So um, I think it was little things like that that I picked up on or like just the way people would converse with you. And I realized that people were just a lot more polite and like every like day to day conversations. It was a lot of like small talk, which I wasn't used to. And um, yeah, it took some time to um, get adjusted to that in the beginning. But I guess like what was jarring, I would say, is is stuff that uh, I saw and experienced like later on in my time in the U.S. So I was there in the U.S. for about five years, uh, four and a half years, actually. And um, I don't know when the whole like the Black Lives movement was movement was happening and um, just all the explicit like racism and everything you would see in the media. And it just I think it. It obviously wasn't directly targeted towards me, but I had friends uh, who it really affected and I was a part of a community that deeply cared about issues like this. So I think it just it was just shocking to see something like that happen. And it's not like India doesn't have its fair share of like oppression and like things going on. But um, it was it, it was just a different uh, category of like issues that I was like witnessing compared to what really is usually a problem in india if that makes sense yeah that makes sense i think with india it's a lot probably more like on based on like ethnic group maybe like tribalism kind of vibes i don't know yeah but (laughs) yeah exactly it's not really race related it's more within like it's like colorism or uh gender inequality or things like that you know um so that is i mean not that there are any lesser important issues it's just i guess i was more um not really i don't know i i i guess the right way to say it is like i had a thicker skin to it because i fully understood those issues whereas here like i had absolutely like no knowledge about why it was like things were the way they were so it took a lot of like learning from my uh friends of color and like just reading into like American history and looking at everything to really get a perspective of why things escalated so quickly and um, they ended up in the situation that they did. Yeah, I feel like the historical aspect of it really like drives the point home. Exactly. And you guys probably learned that in high school and like that's yeah. some context that, you know, international students don't have. So yeah, yeah. don't have. You know, I feel like that's definitely probably a session that I hope they maybe have now or international, well, not international schools, but like schools in the U.S. with international students are trying to address this. Mm-hmm. But off of that, I do want to ask kind of like, are you considered like darker skinned or like in India? Like, how does that help? I guess, where do you fit um, into the spectrum? I think I'm like medium, medium. Um, but I'm like, I'm not considered fair skinned, but I'm also not considered like darker skinned. Um, so yeah, I'm somewhere like in the middle. Uh, I do get tanned very easily, but the tan also Mm. breaks very easily. So it really is like what time of the year you catch me. (laughs) So yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that makes sense. Um, I think with other countries, it's harder to like, I don't know, I guess, understand the dynamics of like racism and colorism. If you, mm -hmm. if you haven't like grew up within their education system. Yeah, for sure. And I think it also depends on the kind of people you're surrounded with while you're growing up, right? So obviously, like, it wasn't a big deal in my family or, like, my friend circle or anything like that because, um, I don't. I mean, I really don't need to emphasize this, but you're more than your skin color, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in most other parts of India, it is a big deal. Like, people do have an obsession with, like, fair-skinned uh, people and they associate that with... Um, being beautiful and being anything else is like not really beautiful. So um, obviously that's really changing over time. And as people voice their opinions, people are like more activist uh, movements are happening and people are just becoming more aware in general. Um, So that trend is definitely changing, but um, I think it's really deep rooted in the Indian mindset, which uh eventually with i think it will take a lot of time for that to like get uprooted yeah no i think it's pretty much across the world because like mm-hmm. i was never shocked until i saw 
like some skin lightening products in the 7-Eleven in Thailand. And I was like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, when I was doing my research, like, you know, being black in Thailand, they were just like, bring your own skin products. Like, everything in there might have lightening stuff. I was like, you know, yeah, I don't want to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's, I mean, Fair and Lovely is, uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, but, like, it does mm-hmm. so well in India. And I don't even know if it really works. Like, I've never heard of it actually working. But people just, like, lather it onto their skins and magically hope their skin color will change. But that's the obsession with being fair, yeah. you know, in certain stratas of the society. And it's like you can't even blame them. It's been passed on from years and years of, like, people trying to create this entire mindset that this is what beauty is so yeah you know it's systemic it's deeply rooted in i feel like like media does a big part in it i feel like india has a big media thing with like bollywood so i think maybe mm-hmm. that reinforces it too mm-hmm. yeah for sure so sort of flipping off of that like is there anything about life in india that would you know take the average u.s citizen by surprise like i don't know me for example <laughs> I think you gotta be more specific than that. I'm sure my entire life in India will oh take you. By, I I don't think it'll take you by surprise because you know so much about me already. But um, mm. just in general, I think everything, literally everything, just the way we live is so different. But on a broader scale, um, India is one of those countries where our culture is more collectivistic, and. Um, I feel like the U.S. and more Western countries are more individualistic. Like, obviously, they value family and all of that. But in India, it's just like that's where everything begins and ends. Like, I speak to my parents every single day. Uh, They know everything that's happening in my life. And for a lot of people, that might seem like, oh, that's a lot. You know, like, um, you're 23. You should be able to do like live your life by yourself and then you just inform your parents about what's happening but to your parents like an to an indian parent you're always a little kid and they're always trying to protect you um which can be great in some ways and not so great in some ways but it really is like what you make out of it um so i think the biggest difference is just like um how independent uh people are um in the u.s which is great like from a younger age um And then I think, obviously, culturally, there's a lot of differences. What we celebrate like 10 festivals a year. So for me, I I, I feel like when I'm in when I'm in um, when I was in London or when I was in Boston, like Christmas was such a big deal because that was the only time everything was so festive and like all of that. But for me, I have like 10 festivals back home. So there's never so much importance associated with like just one festival, not festival, one holiday, I guess. Mm. Um, So yeah, um, there's that. And then, yeah, I think you need to ask me more specific questions (laughs) about it. But I think overall, that's what I think uh, are the major differences. That makes sense. I can definitely see how, like, celebrating things less frequently can just make, I don't know, life a little more dreary. I feel like Mm -hmm. I'd be all for more festive holidays in the U.S. I feel like we need it. Yeah, exactly. I think, and they also happen um, in, like, good, like, breaks. So if we have a big festival, like, in Jan, then we'll have another in, like, March, and then another, like, in May. So it's, like, every two months, you there's something to celebrate, you know? So, Mm -hmm. um... I think that's what makes it a little bit more exciting. But then at the same time, um, I don't know. I don't feel the same way these with these festivals as I do, as it seems like when people open Christmas presents or something. Because it's like such a big deal. Like everyone's looking forward to it the whole year um, compared to like you celebrating something every two months. Yeah, I, guess, I guess there are trade-offs. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So speaking more on your time in the U.S., kind of... Mm. I guess going throughout BAPS and going throughout college, knowing that like there was that, that deadline of graduation looming on your visa. I guess, mm-hmm. one, how was that? And then, two, how did you approach the whole job search process? I think it was definitely stressful because um, I knew there was a deadline of, okay, I'm working towards this, and this is potentially just going to be my end date, the last date that I can be in the U.S. And... Uh, you worked in the Glavin Center, so you know how hard it is for international students mm-hmm. to find jobs um, in the U.S., especially uh, with the political climate at the time that we were in college. It was just getting harder and harder. Um, so, yeah, I think it was definitely a hard 
process, something that I did take some pressure from throughout my time in college. I was more focused. I put in a lot more hours than a lot of my peers, just trying to apply to as many internships as I can, getting that job, getting that internship that could convert into like a full time offer. Um, and people who were willing to sponsor me, which was obviously um, not that easy because most companies were rolling back uh, sponsoring international students because it was so um, like the future of immigration was so mm -hmm. unknown at that point of time. Um, I think the way I approached it is like from the beginning, I knew that uh, my strategy had to be very different. Like I had to have an internship every summer. So uh, even my freshman year summer, I interned at Babson and then every summer moving forward, like I worked throughout the year um, to get an internship that would kind of lay the next step to like get to my final like job offer. Uh, so my first summer I worked at the Babson Boston campus and I just literally learned how an internship works because I've never interned in my life before. So that was like a good uh, starting point because it was at a place that I was already comfortable with. Um, and then in my sophomore year, I was really interested in finance. Uh, so I interned at uh, UBS uh, in Miami, which was also a different move that I had to make within the US for the summer. Um, and then when at my time in uh, in my time at UBS, um, I realized that I really enjoyed like financial modeling, but I wanted to be able to do something with the data. Um, so I realized I wanted to go into financial strategy and that's when I started applying for consulting uh, roles, like consulting companies and like also internal strategy roles like the one I ended up with. Uh, and then I really ended up liking uh, the, my job um, at Wayfair. I got a full-time offer. I continued working part-time and they sponsored me. So I worked for a year on my um, OPT, which is the optional practical training that's given to all international students uh, for a year, beyond which you have to enter the H-1B lottery system. Um, and yeah, you know all the issues that I've been <laughs> through with the H-1B system, I which do. we can talk more about soon. But yeah, so um, I think leading up to my job in the US, that's all the work that I had to put in. It definitely seems difficult. I can't imagine having to, I guess the job search process out of college is already difficult and you got to deal with all of that on top of it. I feel yeah. like companies may like lead you on or like say shit at the last minute. Oh, sometimes you just get rejected literally the second you apply because most of the jobs you apply for, um, they have this question of, do you need to be sponsored? Are you an international student? And mm -hmm. if you say yes, you automatically get declined from that internship. So I've literally gotten over a hundred rejection emails where I knew I was even overqualified for the job, but people wouldn't look at my application because I just didn't fit their immigration criteria. So that is that has got to be the most like disheartening part of the process because you work so hard like for your grades and just everything, building your resume up, doing everything, and then they it doesn't even deserve like like people don't even think it deserves a chance of looking at it because what's the point? It's definitely tough when you're applying and it's so easy to get demotivated because a lot of companies that might end up being your dream places to start off your career just don't sponsor you out of college. And if that's the case, then they you've lost your chance for them to even look at your application. And that just feels unfair, obviously, because you feel like you deserve it as much as anyone else applying to that job. So, yeah. I guess when your visa expired and it came time to leave the United States, how difficult was it, like, leaving everything that you had built here? It was honestly one of the hardest things that I've had to do in my life. And um, it's so funny because my entire time, like, in the U.S., I knew there was, like, this time cap, like, looming. And, like, I had to leave eventually. And at some point, I wanted to leave because I really missed home and... Um, you know, I was just like, I never thought that my life was in the U.S. I always thought, yes, I'm here for the exposure, the experience, but eventually I want to move back home and I want to travel the world. Like, it's not like I want to settle down in the U.S. or something. But when the time actually came for me to leave, um, it was just so hard because I built this entire life by myself. And 
you know, like in Boston, it was just like we always used to hang out. There was like mm-hmm. I had like 30 plus friends at any given point of time to do something. Um, I loved my job. I loved the people that I worked with. Um, yeah, I think towards the end, everything really like when I graduated college and I had my first year, at, I think I was really, I mean, in retrospect, now that I compare it to my um, all the changes that have happened in my life, it really does seem like the best time that I've had in my life. Um, and it was incredibly hard. I've made some of the best friendships in my life. Um, and I know they're going to continue like forever. Uh, I've met some amazing like professional connections, mentors, uh, just a lot of people who've helped me grow throughout my time in the U.S. And just leaving all of that and not knowing when I'm going to come back was just the hardest part, I think. Just knowing there's a deadline looming on anything makes it like, difficult, I guess, to have like, I don't know, build yeah. permanent rem- permanency. Yeah, and I really, really tried to like, you know, make the most of my time um, in Boston. So I absolutely have no regrets uh, on how I spent it. Um, but yeah, I think I think anytime there's a change, like a major change happening in your life, you're bound to feel like you're losing out on something. But uh, my mindset was just really that, okay, like I need to motivate myself. I need to pick myself up back together. I can like restart. And I was just, I, I think I just kept telling myself like I physically might not be here, but um, all the experiences that I've had over here are gonna like carry with me for the rest of my life. So what is it that I'm gonna do from here that's gonna make this experience worth it? So yeah. All right. Definitely makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, and for Berlin, like, had you ever been to Germany before? Had you like ever imagined yourself living there? <laughs> no, never. Like in a million years, I would never have thought that I would end up in Germany, and that too in Berlin, um, of all places. Um, yeah, it's actually funny because when I was studying abroad in London, I traveled Europe a lot, and. Um, Every time one of my friends would suggest Germany, I was like, oh, it's fine. Like, I'm not so interested. Let's go to like another place. And Sama, I was like, you know, I don't know. The world just decided the universe conspired like against me. And was like, yeah, go here because you said you didn't want to go here. I'm going to make you live here. But um, I mean, I'm just joking. Germany is a great place. Um, obviously, I'm so thankful for this opportunity to be here and experience Berlin like in my early 20s. Uh, which I think is going to be a really cool experience when COVID is just not so bad. Um, But yeah, I would have never imagined ever. I guess overall, when you were getting ready to go to Germany, like, were you like excited, nervous, scared? Just like, how are you feeling? It was actually a really long process. Um, So when I didn't get picked in the H1B lottery, uh, I think I just decided that I wanted to move back home to Hyderabad for good and work in my family business for a while and then probably start um, start something by myself eventually when I feel like I've had enough experience. And the, the reason I wanted to do that was because I was kind of just so sick of moving all the time and starting my life all over again, building it up. And then by the time I was, you know, having a good time or enjoying uh, my life there, I had to like pack up and move again, you know? So I think um, at that point, I was really just craving some consistency and I thought I would get that when I moved back home. So when my team suggested that they would create a role for me in Berlin and they would be more than happy to like relocate me, um, I was actually a bit uh, hesitant and I told them like, keep, please keep the opportunity open because eventually if I want to go, I want, I want there to be an option. But um, in my head, I really wasn't sure. Um, so I did apply and then I told them um, that I would make the move and stuff. And then I went back home to India because I wanted to process my uh, German visa from India since my US visa was expiring soon. And I got stuck in India for five months. I was supposed to go back home for like a month, uh, apply for my German visa and leave. But because of COVID, all the consulates were closed. Um, Just everything, the processing was so hard. And eventually um, when I did get my visa, I was dealing with a lot of like personal stuff happening in my life. Um, 
that just like pushed the date even more and then by the time i decided okay it's time now i need to go to like berlin now like it's like now or never you know if i don't go past this point then i'm never gonna go um my flights kept getting canceled because of covid um so i just feel like there were so many hurdles along the way but i did eventually make it um and i was very confused throughout the process but i think what really made me uh what really pushed me to take up the opportunity was one i really loved my job and um all, all the things that i was able to build over my one year um at wayfair working for perigold and i wanted to continue building those and seeing the impact of like all the things that i was working on and then the second thing was I think I just wasn't ready like living in India for 5 months made me realize that like actually there's so much more for me to see and this is not the time for me to like move back home and uh settle down here because there's a lot more I could learn and this is probably the only time in my life where I have no responsibilities and I can make this decision to just move to a completely new country and uh take the risk of um liking it or not liking it but then that's completely on me you know So yeah. yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's a cool life experience to get to like move to a new country and like have the job part like already secured and locked down. Yeah, I think that was the most secure thing in my entire move, which is so funny because um I already came from working for a year and a half for Wayfair including my internship. So when I moved to Germany, the job is like what fit in like more seamlessly. I knew exactly what to do. It was everything else that I had to figure out. So yeah. <laughs> So yeah. Berlin specifically, does it have like a reputation uh, out of German cities? Like, is it normal? Like, I know it's the capital, but you've lived in a few places like London, Miami, Boston, Hyderabad. Yeah. How does Berlin compare so far, at least? Berlin is very liberal, um, and I think that it, that's the reputation it has all over the world. Like, I don't know. It's kind of like New York, but like ten times New York. You know, you can literally wear whatever you want on the street. No one is even gonna bat an eye at you. Um, there's graffiti everywhere. Like you will see all these like beautiful, like hundreds of years old buildings, and then there's just graffiti on it. Um, my personal opinion is that I think the graffiti ruins the beauty of the buildings, but I know a lot of artists would disagree. So I'm gonna stop that over there. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's it's. Honestly it's it's a very young city there's just so many young people in Berlin um uh it's high on like startup culture um yeah it's like very vibrant but obviously it's hard for me to say exactly what it's like because Berlin is known for its nightlife and all the things that you can do here and all of that is shut right now because of covid so anything i would say would not be like a 360 like degree view of it Yeah, that definitely. I think you've gotten like the Berlin light experience. So <laughs> exactly, <laughs> Berlin like uh, it's like a cheap trip, you know. Um, I don't get to experience everything else. Because in terms of like everyday things, like getting your apartment, you know, getting things like internet set up, like doctors, going to the grocery store, like how have those mm -hmm. casual interactions have been? Has anything been like particularly jarring? I guess. Um, I think the biggest problem. Uh, was me not knowing german and i really underestimated how important that was when i moved to berlin because i just assumed you know it's such a young city everyone probably can speak english um so i i i don't know i didn't even think twice i didn't think i would have an issue but uh when i eventually made it uh you know the story but um i called an uber at the airport and i got into the wrong uber because the driver was talking to me in german and i was talking to him in english and we kind of just were talking through like hand signals and then halfway through the trip he realizes that the other person who called the uber um calls him and is like oh where are you and then he was like wait aren't you in the car so it was that oh, was just yikes. a whole different experience <laughs> in itself um he had to drive me back to the airport i had to find my other driver so i think literally the moment i stepped into berlin i started having issues um with that um and i think a usual grocery shopping trip will probably would have probably taken me like 30 minutes if i was in the us or like the uk or something in berlin it takes me easily one and a half to two hours because i literally have my google translate app 
open and I'm like (laughs) like taking pictures and translating everything everything's in German and I don't understand anything which is a completely new experience for me because yes I've moved quite a bit in my life but I've never moved to a non-English speaking country um so when I moved to the U.S. I honestly it was yeah it was like cultural differences but it's not like I would get lost somewhere you know like I could eventually find figure out where to get to like from where um and then public transport, there's like four different types of public transport. There's the tram, U-Bahn, S-Bahn, like buses. Um, and I, I felt so overwhelmed in the beginning because, um, I mean, it was just, it seemed so complicated. Everything was in German. And luckily, I had a few friends already by the time I came here. So my first few times, they helped me like navigate um, through the public transportation system. So I figured it out. Um, but yeah, like grocery stores or like, it's been really hard because I'll go up and ask them, oh, where can I find Nutella or like something like that? And the first thing they say, they're not even listening to me. They're like, no English. And Mm I, I don't blame them. I don't expect them. Like I'm in their country, obviously. And, um, the respectful thing for me to do is try to speak their language. Um, but I think it's definitely it's hard to do that when German is not an easy language, you know, like it's hard to learn it. It's going to take some time. Um, So it's been a lot of I've just like Google Translate has been my best friend so far. Yeah, I think German is one of those very complex languages. I don't know, like 13 or nine or whatever ways say no or something like something like that. Yeah. And honestly, it's not even just Germany. I feel like that's just how the culture is in most of Europe. You know, if you go to like Paris or something or even even if you were like if you go to Spain or something and you go to like a cafe, a local cafe, they're just going to be like, oh, why aren't you speaking our language? You know, Um, so I get it. I get that defensiveness. I get all of that. Um, And I'm the visitor in this place. So I'm just going to try my best to um, be respectful and get what I can. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. you had the experience of living through the COVID pandemic in three different countries. So I guess how yeah. have those experiences <laughs> compared? And I guess how is the U.S. handling it versus, say, India or Germany? Oh, wow. I actually did not realize that. <laughs> and now that I think about it, um, every country that I moved to has, like, it's like I'm taking the lockdown with me. <laughs> um, when I was in Boston, Boston was in lockdown. Then I moved to India. India was in lockdown. And now I'm in Germany and Germany's in lockdown. So I guess I'm like the bad seed that like, you know, it's following me everywhere. <laughs> You're spreading COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally. Um, I, just, I don't think America handled it that well. Uh, obviously, especially during the time that I was there. I was in America till like um, mid-May. Uh, and that was when, like, it was cases were that was really when we were high. Good. <laughs> yeah, that was just like terrible. Like, it was like at the peak of the pandemic um, in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it, they were handling it really that well. But I was also just quarantining. I was chilling with you guys, and we were just being safe most of the time. So I didn't really feel the effects of it so much. Um, I think India tried to handle it really well and for the scale and I'm not being biased because it's my country but given the population size I think um, we tried really hard to contain the virus and um, even though the lockdowns initially really impacted our economy that was the right thing to do at that moment you know Uh, and now we're at a point where like yes cases are rising everything is spreading but um, I don't know. I just think we're also at a point where where most of the vaccines in the world are being manufactured in India right now. So at least like we have that relief, you know, that we're going to get them soon. Um, and Germany, of course, has one of the best healthcare systems in the world. So I'm not even worried. Like when I'm here, I'm just like, oh, OK, you know, even if I if, even if I'm done with COVID, I know I'm going to like somehow I'm going to recover. Um, and Germany is probably by far like the best country that's handling it in the most like advanced way possible. Um, we're having a lockdown now and the situation is not even like, I don't know, it doesn't feel at least for me on my individual experience nearly as bad as how it is in India or um, in America. But um, I think 
the country is just very forward looking and um because of that they're taking a lot of like preventative measures um which are obviously going to benefit the country there are a lot of memes about like german efficiency so like i am not surprised like they've been yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and um you know when i came i had to quarantine like man like i had to do a mandatory 10-day quarantine as soon as i landed in germany um and then i got my COVID, oh, this is, I think I shared the story with you, but um, so if you get a COVID negative test on the fifth day, that means uh, they can release you from quarantine because you're done with like the initial quarantine period and you don't have to do the rest of the five days. And I couldn't get an appointment for a COVID test on the fifth day. So I got it done on the fourth day and the local um, health department didn't accept it. They were literally like, no, you have to do it on the fifth day. You can't use the fourth day one. And I'm like, what is going to change overnight? It's not like I'm going to catch COVID like in one night, you know? So I think there's a lot of rules, which can be very frustrating at times because they are stickler for rules. But I guess in more in situations like this, where your health is at like concern, then um, obviously it's better to like uh, enforce the rules than not, you know? Yeah, I feel like in a pandemic timing, you can, you know, you, you can be a little stringent. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's frustrating for the individual, but it's just for the overall, like, well-being of the entire country and the community that you're living in. So, yes. Yeah, so, speaking more to, like, your lockdown in India, spending five months there kind of going back, I guess, what was yeah. that like? Was there any reverse culture shock going on? Yes, uh, a lot actually um i i'm like trying to think of the right <laughs> words to even put it together um i don't know i think i really underestimated again uh this is like i'm sure you can sense a pattern of me underestimating how hard things can be uh when i moved back to india i just thought oh this is my home i've grown up here for 17 years why would it be hard you know like i would love um it would just be the same. I thought everything would go back to normal. I would be spending time with my family and stuff, but I couldn't be more wrong. And don't get me wrong. Like I obviously loved spending time with my family. I caught up with a lot of my friends that I haven't seen in years, but um, it was just, I did experience a reverse uh, culture shock because I think I was, like I was away for five years and those five years were like my primary, like growing years of like growing into myself and developing a personality for myself. So I think I really changed as a person compared to how I left India. So when I went back, um, it's so weird to see say this, but I felt more American and Westernized than Indian. Um, and it took a solid like uh, two to three months to realize that like, I don't know, I would just do like a lot of things that my parents would be like, oh, why are you doing this? Like, we don't do this here. And um, then I would have to tell myself, okay, yeah, like actually they're right. You know, it, it just becomes like mm -hmm. force of habit, the way you live. Um, and then I think two to three months, like two months into it, uh, I kind of started assimilating back um, into the Indian like way of living, I guess, my way of living. Um, but it was very hard, honestly. I think it was one of the hardest things and probably something that really pushed me to come to Germany, even though I wasn't that keen on um, moving here first because I just realized that there were so many parts of me that were built away from home and I kind of needed to close those loops and get to a point where um, I was secure with those parts and like learned more and like developed those parts a little bit more and then I can come back to India when I'm just more ready for it. Virag, what does your experience compare to what you expected like? Think back to the eighteen-year-old swap. You know, first getting on that plane to Boston, and then yeah. like, this is what happened. I don't know. I just um, I feel like eighteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old swap actually. Seventeen. Oh yeah, we're, was... we're, we're young age. <laughs> I was young. Um, I was just. I think seventeen-year-old swap um, was just really. I know it sounds really privileged when I say this, but it was just very sheltered, like. You know, I worked hard for like getting into Babson and all of those things, but a lot of things were like given to me by my parents, which I'm very like, um, I'm very 
uh, thankful for and stuff. Um, so I think I went from a very sheltered, like innocent girl with like, I was just expecting the world to completely change me, you know, and like have this out of the world experience when I went to the US. And then when I went to the US, I started doing everything by myself, like, uh, like 90% of the things that I did in the US, I would have never done like in India, it, whether it's like household chores or like just normal things like living by myself, being independent. And that just became a way of living for me eventually, like in my second and third year, um, I think I got so independent to the point that like, I really wouldn't even ask for help. Like I would just want to do things by myself, you know, and um, I stopped depending so much on my parents. I became financially more independent, which they were obviously very supportive of. And they they liked the fact that I was trying to build a life for myself. So um, I think I just, it was a mixture of like becoming emotionally more mature, financially independent, and um, just knowing more about the world outside the confines of what you're taught for like 17 years of your life and developing your own opinions. So when I went back, I was just this completely different person. And obviously I saw my family like throughout my time while I was in the US and stuff, but um, it was definitely a change for them too, because we had to like, uh, it was like a process of adjustment. They needed to come to terms with the fact that I'm not still 17 years old or like they're a young like kid, you know, at their house. But like they're, I mean, my parents always say this, You're li when you're living under our <laughs> roof, like it's our rules. Um, but then I think I went back as like a 23 year old who's who hadn't had any rules for the past five years. So it was this whole process of like renegotiating my life and like trying to figure out what are the battles that I wanna pick? Like, what are the things that really matter to me? What don't? Um, and trying to just show my parents like this is who I am and this is who I've become and I'm proud of who I've become and hopefully like this is something that you can accept and I'm sure like I, I'm not saying that they weren't like supportive in any way or something it's just like I was a different like I was a different person and they had to get used to that so yeah I think that was the difference <laughs> yeah that, that seems like a very tough adjustment especially like having your formative years in one country and like you know, being used to being an adult, paying some very expensive rent, and it's like, um, I don't want to. I don't want to be told what to do. Exactly, it's like you know what it's like to live by yourself, and but at the same time, you don't want to be disrespectful. Mm. Like I can't. Every time my parents are like, "Oh, like we did this, we did that," that I, I can't be like, "Oh yeah," but I also like earn this much or I do this. Like that's yeah. just rude. Like I can't say that. That's also, and then they, then they would pull out every other thing they've done for me <laughs> in my life and that I can't compete with that, you know? So um, I think it's always like this power struggle of like who has control over your life. And I don't think they're trying to control it. They just want to be a part of it. But when you're spending like one hour a day talking to them and spending the rest of the 23 hours by yourself, like like what 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 should anyone expect like you you have a mind of your own and you're doing your own thing so to come back to like keeping them in the loop about everything it's like hard you know it's like i had to relearn that all over again you know it's a big change having parents across the world versus like downstairs yeah exactly <laughs> um so yeah it's not like i did any wild or crazy things or anything but even for my very small like i don't know i think it's just also safer to go out later at night in the u.s or just sleep over like just do like a lot of little things that are not even that big of a deal and i need i had to ask for like permissions for all of those like when i was back home and it's not because my parents don't trust me it's just a matter of safety like they need to know where i'm going mm -hmm. so that if something happens to me they know where i am you know so it's that constant process of like do you making decisions for yourself and not being answerable and then like you making decisions for yourself but always having to inform other people about it so coming up on the end of the podcast and to, you know, the final question that I ask every single guest mm -hmm. is your migration journey over. So I know you kind of touched on this earlier, but long term, do you see yourself going back to India, trying to get back to the States, figuring out another country? Maybe you'll like it in Germany and settle here. Yeah, um, I think it's very early right now for me to say mm. whether I'd settle down in Germany or not, because I really haven't experienced Berlin or Germany and it's like true essence. 
Um, so I need to experience that before I make any decision. My lease is currently only for six months. So I've given myself that mm. six months and I'm like, okay, let me see if I like it. And then based on that, I'll sign a longer term lease or not. Um, but I think uh, medium term, I definitely want to come back to the US for my master's at some point. I want to do my MBA. Um, but until I get into like a school that I'd really want to get into for my MBA, um, I might just continue living in Berlin uh, for a bit to get more experience. I really want to travel Europe more. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I chose Berlin because uh, I don't know, I have this really weird irrational fear that once I'm like not in my 20s anymore, I won't travel as much and I love traveling. So I just really want to make the most of it uh, right now. Um, and yeah, so I think medium term, I see myself coming back uh, to the US for a year or two for my master's. Uh, eventually, I've always wanted to settle down in India, but that perspective also kind of changed when I went back home for five months uh, recently when I told you that whole story. Um, so it really depends. I think I realized that I just can't make any decisions now before I had this entire like structured plan of this year I'm going to do this and then I'm going to go here and I'm going to move here and I knew exactly what I wanted to do um but now it's just like I'm just going to go after the best opportunity possible and uh see where it takes me I'm really just taking life as it comes to me at this point um I've had a really crazy 2020 and I think it's really taught me that I need to, I know it sounds so cliche, but I just need to live in the moment and enjoy what's given to me in that moment because you don't know how long it's going to last. And I'm just going to keep, I will keep planning my future. That's a part of me. You know that I can never like not mm -hmm. think about the next thing that I want to do. But um, I've realized that I want to take it slow and the next one to two years, um, I kind of want to spend it for myself. Well, makes sense. And I feel like after such a wild year, that's definitely the best way to go. I think yeah. that's just the best outlook to have on life, to take it one step at a time, see what comes to you. Because yeah. who knows, maybe, maybe you'll be managing like a club in Dubai or doing something in Australia. <laughs> like, you wish. You know, Those are all the things US. you wish I do. <laughs> I mean, I don't so know about Australia. Get... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, if but... I were to pick my dream country for you to work in, I can just pull up to. I don't even know. Where, where would I pick? <laughs> I don't know. What would you pick? Yeah, I mean, you wanted to work in my family business in India, so and you wanted me to write your village uh, in India. I don't know how. I don't know how yeah. I could buy you an entire village. Um, well, I mean, so, yeah. if, if housing is included in, in in your parents' job offer, we we can talk. Yeah, sure. Then uh, you can bring your podcast to India. Then switch it over. But yeah, you're right. I just think we've like 2020 has just been such a crazy year and. All of us have go gone through like our own crazy changes, you know, in our own different ways. And um, it's really taught us like how to pause. And um, I think the biggest difference that I'm experiencing right now is that when I was in the US and working like corporate with Wayfair, I was just, I don't know, I felt like I was in this rat race. Like I was always trying to like be the best at my job. Like I wanted to, I wanted to get promoted. I wanted to do X, Y, Z, and there was just no limit you know, to like the things that mm -hmm. I wanted. Um, and it's like nothing could satisfy me. I just have to keep, I just have to keep running and running and running. And uh, my like break in India and like now my time in Europe where there's a larger like work-life balance like than uh, the US, it's just made me realize that I also need to like take a break, um, enjoy life. Migration is always tough um, when you're moving to a new city or new country that you don't know anyone in. Um, it can be really hard and exciting at the same time. So I think it's just your outlook. What do you want to do with it? Do you want it to be an experience you look back upon like in a couple of years? Or am I just going to do what I was meant to be here for like and like work my ass off forever? And um, just and then like look back twenty years down the line and be like, oh, I wasted my year in Berlin. So yeah. Mm -hmm. well, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. So with this being the end of the interview, is there anything that you want to plug or promote or any questions that you have for me? Oh, I just want to promote this podcast because I think it's you've been doing such a great job and I've been following it from the very beginning. You have such diverse stories and it's something so unique. 
Um, and I love that, you know, as an American citizen, uh, you've taken such great interest into like learning more and like exposing our stories of like what it's like to be an international student and what it really is to migrate and go through all these things that are not so common. I mean, it is a very common thing. People migrate all the time, but in the context of like, you know, our personal experiences. Um, so yeah, I just, I obviously wish you the best of everything and I hope this blows up and um, everyone sees what amazing work you're doing here. Well, thank you, Swap. I appreciate that. And I hope this episode is the one that blows up so everyone can you know, hear you <laughs> and, our, and our banter. Of course. Uh, Co-Sagittarians, of course. <laughs> Sagittarius squad. And then maybe <laughs> Sag- you can get on like Indian matchmaking season two. Oh my God, please, no. <laughs> I want to stay as far away from that as possible. <laughs> oh, it was great talking to you, Aiden. It was great talking to you, Swap. Thank you so much for coming on. Of course. Good luck with everything. And um, looking forward to your other stories that are coming up soon. Of course. It's always fun talking with a fellow Sagittarius and, you know, one of my favorite classmates turned co-workers from Babson. And also, this is, again, the last episode of 2020, which is wild to say, but I'm excited for a new year and another year of doing this podcast, hopefully growing, getting more listeners for the Postable Factor fam, and I hope that all of you listening bring in the new year with joy and prosperity. As always, please visit our website, pushpullfactor.com, and check us out on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter, at pushpullfactor. DM me, tweet me. I don't bite, but I might ask you to subscribe where you get your favorite podcast. Give us a rating and review on the App Store. Hopefully a positive one, but do you. But again, be nice. And have a happy new year, wherever you're listening and wherever you're celebrating.